0: The Me Too movement has led many people to share their experiences with sexual harassment and sexual assault. It has sparked conversations and controversy and maybe even cultural change. This is Unsettled, Mapping Me Too, a podcast from Iowa Public Radio dedicated to conversations about Me Too and its impact. I'm Charity Nebbe. On this episode, we'll talk about how many people have responded to a terrible act of violence that cost 20-year-old Molly Tibbetts of Brooklyn, Iowa. Her life. In July of 2018, Tibbetts went out for a run in her small town and never came home. Her disappearance launched a massive search effort, and later we learned that she was murdered. A 24-year-old man allegedly followed her on her run, and when his sexual advances were rejected, murdered her. We may never know the whole story of what happened that evening, but this heartbreaking event has started many conversations about what a crime like this can tell us about our culture. On this episode, I'll talk with violence prevention specialists and a runner. My first guest today is Reka Basu, a columnist for the Des Moines Register who published a column titled, Instead of Blaming Immigration for Molly Tibbetts' Death, blame misogyny. Reka, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Charity. You have written a great deal about violence against women over your long career. What was your reaction when you learned what happened to Molly Tibbetts?
1: First of all, I was I was horrified and um I also knew that as soon as word came out that he was possibly in this country illegally, um it was going to kick up a huge reaction on the part of the right and people who wanted to use that fact for political gain. And, I mean, I I think the issue, to me, the issue is so clear-cut. It's one about violence against women. It's one about misogyny. It's one about the sense of, you know, in general, in our culture and in our society, of male entitlement. And as you said, um, his sexual advances were rejected. Apparently, this is what triggered her death. What that has to do with the man's undocumented status is beyond me. And yet everybody is making an issue of that fact. And in fact, Charity, when when one writes about this or points it out and not just my column, but several other people who posted on Facebook, um, one of them, a cousin of Molly Tibbetts, um, got some really just she didn't get the vitriolic reaction. But another woman, an Iowa City woman in Chicago who talked about um, male entitlement, got vitriolic reactions to the point where, you know, she was getting death threats and people were saying that her daughter should die. Why are we so unwilling to call it for what it is?
0: Well, and there are a lot of people who have been watching this case so closely and, of course, searching for Molly, hoping for Molly's return for so long. People have really gotten caught up in the emotion of this tragedy. And as the facts were reported, I mean, the immigration status of the man who is suspected of committing this murder mm-hmm. became a big part of the story. But I want to focus on what you feel, the statistics that, that you have about violence against women and crimes committed in this country, why you feel that that's not where we need to focus. I think that is where we need to focus. Or no, not focus on immigration, but to focus on on exactly. Right. Okay. So
1: let me just give you some statistics here. Um, every 98 seconds, someone is sexually assaulted and 98.9% of rapes are committed by men. 89.5% of murders are committed by men. And these are FBI statistics. 80% of violence against families and children is committed by men. 85% of in- Intimate partner violence is committed by men, and the numbers go on and on. And um, if you look at the documentation on uh, undocumented immigrants or immigrants in general committing crimes, it shows that actually they commit crimes lower than their rate in the population, so less crimes than the native born population does per capita.
0: So what do you think we can take away from that, this situation and the many other situations that you have covered over the years uh, Mm -hmm. of women being hurt or murdered by men who... Have had their sexual advances rejected or in some situation of, of domestic conflict. What mm-hmm. what do we need to be thinking about?
1: I think we really need to be thinking about reforming our culture and reforming the notions of manhood and what it means to be a man in our society and the idea that one should be able to dominate and one should be able to have access to a woman when one chooses. I've written in the past year I've written pieces about a grandfather who molested his granddaughter and actually went to prison for it. And she was such a courageous young woman for coming forward and actually going through the trial. Um, and then I've written about a doctor, a doctor in Harlan, Iowa, who for decades was molesting these young girls who were his patients. And in both of those cases and many other cases I've written about, there was this conspiracy of silence around these perpetrators because even their female employees wanted to make excuses for them. And often it was because, you know, they had stereotypes about the people who were their victims, that they were either working class or, you know, from the wrong barn on the wrong side of the tracks or whatever. But there's this sense of protect your own, which is why something like 99 percent of perpetrators actually
0: escape charges. And in the case of the doctor, he certainly did. Joining us now is Cody Howell, Violence Prevention Specialist at the Women's Resource and Action Center at the University of Iowa. Hello, Cody.
2: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Welcome back to the show. And Cody, of course, Molly Tibbetts was a University of Iowa student. So again, I mean, this is a story that hits very close to home for so many people in Iowa, so many people at the University of Iowa. What was your reaction when you learned?
2: I mean, uh, of course, being a st- you know, having a student having this all happen there is uh it, it hits close to home, it does. And I think about the students who, you know, want answers and they want they want a quick answer too. A lot of people are like, what can we do? What happens now? And I think that the real answer is there's no quick fix to this. It is culture change. And so, you know, besides being sad and angry and, you know, upset, it's it's like, what happens now? What do we do? How can we be there for the students who are, you know, mourning and in grief, and how do we help them find answers to the questions that they have about, you know, what does it mean to be safe? What does it mean to look out for one another? What does it mean to create and cultivate a culture on campus and in the Iowa City community that looks out for one another, calls out problematic behavior, um, and really, you know, cares for one another? So it's it's a matter of saying, you know, while we're we're grieving we have to always look forward and say, what can we do to make sure that, you know, we're looking out for one another. That's, that was in my mind as, you know, as I was processing and I, I noticed students coming in and feeling scared and feeling upset. And many of them knew her. Many of them were, you know, saying, you know, like, I know, I know this this woman and I know what it meant. So it's, uh, it's hard to process. It's hard to help students figure out. But I think, you know, trying to focus on what can we all do together as a community to make each other safer.
0: Well, one of the first questions that was asked at a press conference about what happened to Molly was what can women do to keep themselves safe? And I know that that's a question that a lot of us have been asking, but you feel like that was the wrong question to ask. Why?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it was so interesting too, because if you look at the answer that was given, which I think was a great one, it's, Molly ran those streets. That's Molly's hometown. She knows what she was doing. Just as we have, you know, women uh, and folks running around Iowa City, they know what they're doing. And we need to be creating communities that feel safe to do so. This is not an uncommon thing for women to, you know, want to go out and experience and navigate the world safely. But what we need to be doing is, what can we be doing to create safety in our communities? Not arming only one. Uh, One gender and saying, here, here's all this, all these resources, all of these, you know, pepper spray, here's mace, here's all these things, a taser for you. I mean, it's, it's unrealistic for, you know, women to be told that that's the only way to stay safe. If we're not telling men and boys that when somebody rejects you or somebody says no, that's the end of the line. You don't keep pushing, but that's not the cultural script that we're giving men and boys. We're telling them, you know, if they say no, they're playing hard to get and keep pressing on and be confident and keep saying, you know, why not? And oftentimes I think rejection gets turned um, not just inward but outwards and turns into outright violence against women. So we need to be asking, what can we do to better create cultural scripts for men and boys for rejection, for acceptance of uh, change, and how can we you know, better respect boundaries, better respect consent? And also creating spaces for men and boys to talk about that so that they can, you know, keep each other accountable so we don't have constant cultural messages that say men are only supposed to be hunters and men are only supposed to be hunting women. And we can look out for each other and say, what can we do to create safety so women, boys, men, everyone can feel safe running, navigating the world, and just even, you know, helping each other out.
0: I want to dig down a little bit more on where you feel these messages are coming from for men in our culture. Um, In the the past year or so with the the Me Too movement, I've often thought um, that we're expecting men and boys to suddenly understand that a behavior that has been normalized and okay for a long time and even possibly romanticized in our culture is not okay. So we haven't prepared men and boys for this world. Where are all of these messages coming from in, in your mind?
2: Yeah, and it, it's not it's it's so many things. It's not just I could easily point fingers at one thing or the other, but it's the compounded issues of so many things. It's it's cultural messages in our in our movies, in our TV, in our media, but also it's the social circles that we all run in. It's our it's our fathers, it's our brothers, it's our best friends, it's our fraternity brothers telling us, do this. This is what's expected to be done. And this is how it's been done in order to get what you want or chase the girl and, you know, get the girl. And I know I, sp- I speak in gendered expectations and gendered terms right now, but we know that violence can happen to anyone across all gender spectrums. But it's important to know, as as we've said before, that you know men wildly and across the board commit most gender-based violence.
0: With me, Rekha Basu, columnist for the Des Moines Register, Cody Howell, violence prevention specialist at the Women's Resource and Action Center at the University of Iowa. I want to bring another voice into the conversation here. Kelly Teeslink is a trail runner in. Eastern Iowa. She's the founder of a local chapter of the running club called Trail Sisters and also executive director of Girls on the Run of Eastern Iowa. Kelly, thank you for being here.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me. And
0: I can imagine, and I've heard from many of my friends who are runners that hearing about what happened to Molly hit very close to home. What was your reaction?
3: Uh, the same. Um, you know, I've I've heard and read stories about uh, women being attacked while running uh, and have always you know, that really didn't hit me as hard maybe as it should have. But hearing about Molly um, was certainly a much different experience uh, and reaction than I've had in the past. And I think because it was so close to home, um, it just made it a bit more real. And I felt a lot more connected uh, because she was so close and because she was doing something that we both loved.
0: I think a lot of runners probably have thought, wow, that could have been me. Um, Have you thought over the years, you spend a lot of time out running alone many, many miles. You're an ultra marathoner, so many, many miles <laughs> on your own. Um, have you thought about your safety over the years?
3: To be honest, um, it's not something that has crossed my mind a lot. I like to be aware of my surroundings of and where I'm at. But because I run mostly in the trails, uh, I'm not around a lot of people, and which could make people more scared because you're out there by yourself. But um, I have felt pretty safe on the trails um, in the past couple of years since I've been doing that. And I run in the pretty early mornings. And so I'm not seeing a lot of people out, which, again, could make it worse because some, you know, if something happened, I'm I'm alone. Um, But I I want to run the way I want to run. And I will continue to do that in Molly's honor um, and because we should be free to do that.
0: There's been a lot of advice shared uh, in recent weeks about how to be safe, if especially if you're a woman out running alone. There are um, technical devices that you can use. There are apps you can use that, that help people track where you are or that help you call for, for help very quickly. A lot of people recommend carrying pepper spray or mace or things like that. How do you react when I, I'm sure you've been given that advice?
3: Yeah, and I Again, I think it comes down to you run the way you want to run and if you feel safe and comfortable running with Mace or running with an app so your loved ones know where you're at or you have a system that makes you feel comfortable, do that. But if that's not your jam and it's not for me, I don't run with really anything. I don't run with a phone. I don't run with anything to protect me. Um but that's the way I like to run. It makes me feel free and disconnected. Um, and for some, that's, that's not the way they want to run, and that's okay. I think it's, you do what, what makes sense for you.
0: You've clearly made a very conscious decision not
3: to think about this on a daily basis. Why? Um, because running is a big part of my life, and I don't want fear to control the way I think about running. Running is an outlet for me. Uh, As you said, I spend a lot of time running and especially running trails. It's a way that I connect with other people. It's a way I connect with nature. It's a way I connect with myself. And I don't want to let fear uh, and one man's actions um, direct the way I think about running.
0: You participated in a run that was put together just the other night in memory of Molly. You ran with uh, many women runners in Iowa City. Tell me about what that experience was like.
3: Yeah, so this was about a dozen women. I got a a note from my friend Robin just saying, hey, there's going to be a run tonight at 9 p.m. at City High, which is a high school in Iowa City. Uh, I'll be there. I hope you can make it. And I didn't even think twice. I said, "Of course, yes, I'll be there." Uh, even though I'm normally in bed at that time, but I this was this was important to me. Um, I didn't. I knew a few of the women, but a lot of us didn't know each other. There was about a dozen of us that showed up at 9 p.m. in the dark to run, and it was it was a way for us to grieve together. It was a way for us to connect with one another. It was a way for us to feel empowered by one another and support each other. And it was. It was just a few miles, but out of all the thousands of miles I've run in my lifetime, that those were probably a few of the most meaningful I've ever had. What
0: kinds of things did you talk about while you were running?
3: You know, we just enjoyed each other's company, and that's what was so great about it. We knew we were there in honor of Molly. We all wore hearts with her name on it as we ran through um, downtown Iowa City and across campus. Uh, And we just connected with one another and um, since then have decided to make this uh, a regular thing to run in honor for Molly. And I actually, um, there was a Facebook group that was created, and I was just reading some of the descriptions, and I I really joined this enjoyed this, where they say that this group um, will help us find strength in other women and to make our neighborhoods and our towns safer by announcing that we have the right to be here. Um, and that really hits close to home for me. Uh, Reka, in this conversation, um,
0: talking about this pervasive culture mm-hmm. that, that you say and, and many people say, you know, allows men to mm-hmm. commit these acts of violence, even creates a situation where they feel compelled or like they have the right Mm -hmm. to commit these acts of violence. I mean, there are many people who are going to say not all men and clearly not all men are are, are part of this culture. There are many, many men who are not. Um, When we talk about this culture that does not include all men, it, it includes a subsection, but you feel like there is an overarching part of our culture that allows for this, right?
1: Yeah, and its I think it's partly cultural, it's partly economic. I mean, I think that there's an interesting common thread that runs through um, both the sort of anti-woman sentiment that's coming out in the wake of some of us pointing out the gendered aspect to this, as well as an anti-immigrant sentiment that come from the same place, that have a common root, and that is... A feeling that men who are not getting ahead economically, men who are stuck in a place who see the good jobs going to people of color or immigrants or women, a woman for heaven's sake being the nominee of a major party for president last time around, are looking for someone to blame. And so I think it goes a little bit deeper than just the feeling that, you know, um, that they have a right to, or they have this voracious sexual appetite, and so therefore, you know, they they should feel entitled to any woman they want. And I actually really appreciated what Cody said earlier about the fact that the onus should not be entirely on what should women do to keep themselves safe. I think the larger question is, what should men be doing? How can we pull men um, of goodwill into this movement? Because for heaven's sake, yes, not all men, yes, not most men— um, have these feelings of hatred of women or, you know, an extreme superiority of women. But I will tell you that some of the letters that i received tell me that a lot of men do, and it makes them really angry to be called out on it. And they want to maintain their sense of entitlement and power. And we have to start by changing that. And I think it's men who have to lead the way.
0: I want to bring another voice into the conversation. Annette Lynch is here, director of the School of Applied Human Sciences at the University of Northern Iowa and co-founding director of the Center for Violence Prevention, also at UNI. Hello, Annette. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Well, thank you so much for being here today. And uh, you and Cody are, are doing similar work in various places. I know that your work has expanded beyond the University of Northern Iowa. You're also working in secondary schools. Annette, can you give me an example? Uh, I'm sure you've observed a lot of these interactions in high schools. Can you give me an example of an interaction you've seen where you see that light bulb go off, where you see a young man think, oh, uh, you know, this is a new idea for me?
4: I think that uh, the, the strongest examples that I have are, are um, when a young man is empowered to work within his peer group in a way that, he feels, um, comfortable doing it and not, I, I, it, it, it it's, uh, when you have peers work with peers, they're able to create intervention strategies that actually work within the peer group. And that's something I can't invent. It's something that, um, an, maybe a senior can tell to a, a 10th grader, um, that, um, you know, if, if someone is, uh, about ready to send, um, a text message to uh, a young woman, a young woman in in your high school, and you think it's a disrespectful text message. How do you interrupt that? And um, I heard um, an interchange in one of the trainings where um, they were they turned it into a bit of a joke. Where you know these are some of the different things that you could say to him that would interrupt that behavior. And it what the the way that they. Uh, approached it was using um um oh pop music lyrics things that i wasn't familiar with that would give that young man a strategy for talking to another young man and stopping him from sending that text message but doing it in such a way that it was within the culture of really the music culture of of that school and so um, I don't even know the music everybody's listening to, so trying you know, to send Annette Lynch in again to create those kind of interactions is not going to work, but it works within that peer group. With
0: me this hour, Rekha Basu, columnist for the Des Moines Register, Cody Howell, violence prevention specialist at the Women's Resource and Action Center at the University of Iowa, Annette Lynch, who is the co-founding director for the Center for Violence Prevention at the University of Northern Iowa, Kelly Teaslink is here. She's a trail trail runner in eastern Iowa, founder of a local chapter of the running club Trail Sisters, and executive director of Girls on the Run of Eastern Iowa. And we also have a, a caller on the line now. Katie Strong has been running across the country for the last 30 years, many, many miles. Hello, Katie. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you so much all for right. joining our conversation today. And uh, tell first, tell us a little bit about your running. You've been running across the country. You've spent a lot of miles on the road.
5: Yes, I have. Actually, I've been running since June 17th, and I ran almost 3,000 miles uh, all the way to Washington, D.C., Wow. A um, lot of miles, raising money for military veterans that need
0: service dogs. Katie, how did you respond when you heard about what happened to Molly Tibbetts when she was out for a mm-hmm. run?
5: Well, I was actually running in the same area as Molly at the same time that she went missing. And so um, it was very concerning on a lot of levels for me. Um uh, being, uh, you know, in an isolated area um, with all the, um, the cornfields and, and so forth, um, I thought, you know, she's gone somewhere. Uh, if she was hurt, she might be in these cornfields. And I was literally running and looking for her down the rows of corn. And I was looking for a shoe or something she might have kicked off, you know, anything that would indicate where she was. Um, I was in the same area. Um, and so, um, and I realized that I'm, I'm from Southern California. I've not seen cornfields before, but there are miles and miles of them and, and, uh, easy for somebody to take advantage of somebody that's running through there. So, um, yeah, so I was very concerned and, um, I actually had my support crew staying close by. Usually they are within 10 miles of me, but, uh, they were staying within two miles of me so that, uh you know, if anything were to happen, they could get there quickly.
0: Over the years that you've been running, you've had some some really negative experiences. You've been attacked four different times?
5: I have. Actually, I've been running um, long distances since 1977,
0: and uh, I
5: have been attacked four times, and I have actually strategies that I've always used, and I've been able to uh, get away um, every time without any help except for one time when I needed the help of a, the Orkin man who happened to be you know, driving by in his truck and saw what it happen, it was happening, and, and uh, he helped out. But the other three times, um, my strategy is um, different, and I think, you know, girls that like to run should listen. Um, I, I listen to music, but I don't use headphones. I just play my music and everyone can hear what I'm listening to, but I need the advantage of being able to hear if, if a car or a dog or something is coming up on me and so that I can get a strategy ready in case they keep coming toward me. And so that is something that um, is really important in this day and age with uh, the headphones and the Bluetooth and all that to, um, you, know, turn, you know, just don't use the headphones or just use one earbud so you can hear what's going on. And um, the other strategy is, um, well, there's a couple. I've trained in martial arts. So there are a lot of different release moves and things you can use that are not that difficult. Um, and I've actually um, spent time with my sister and nieces um, to show them these release moves. Um, anything from somebody grabbing your hair and trying to pull you away, to grabbing you from behind, um, you know, and wrapping you up. Or there's a, a, something you can do about Everything that a person were to try, um, and so I, you know, I would love to have um, the um, YMCA's and 24 Hour Fitness clubs and things to to uh, make that av- available. As they do, you know, the Zumba classes have you know a, a defense class for runners, um, just you know maybe four sessions, and that that would be all you need. Um, the other strategy that I use right now, it wasn't available to me 40 years ago when I started running was um, mace, pepper spray. Um, everybody every everybody should have one. Um, and the one that I use is about two inches by one inch. It fits in the palm of your hand and you can't even see that it's there. And so my strategy is to have that, have it, fits in the little pocket that running shorts have. As soon as I see somebody running up or um, a dog or a person, I get that out of my pocket and I unlatch it and I have it ready to spray um and you know i've had men runners actually run up like this this person did to molly run up and run next to me um or just run by and wave or just ignore me and just keep going which is more normal um but if somebody comes up and runs next to me i just tell them right away i prefer to run alone alone could you please go on ahead and run without me um and the second you know they don't respond or they keep running next to me, that would be the time when I would spray them right in the face with that. And I'm going to err on the side of my safety, you know, because once I've told them they need to leave and they're not listening, then they're out of luck. And uh, believe me, that pepper spray is really strong, and that will shut them down for about an hour. uh,
0: Katie, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your responses with us today. Again, Katie, strong has been running since 1977 and ran across the country this summer. Uh, I, Cody, I'd love to hear your response a little bit. I mean Katie's Katie's obviously had uh, some really difficult situation she's been in and and she's chosen how she wants to stay safe. But when you're working with women on a college campus, let's talk about where women are at risk. I mean, what happened to Molly is terrible. It's statistically extremely unlikely. And I feel like we're not necessarily very good at risk assessment. Where are women most at risk? What scenarios?
2: Yeah, and I think that that's the important thing, right, is to realize that, you know, Molly Tibbetts' case was uncommon. But, I mean, not enough so that, like, we don't look at the places like Ridgewater, Massachusetts, Mesa Park, Las Vegas, Keene, Texas, where all where women were running and were attacked by somebody they don't know. But realistically, it's uncommon for uh, women to be put in the position where they're attacked by a stranger far more likely you're going to be attacked or going to be assaulted by somebody that you know mm-hmm. which when I work when I used to work with survivors of, of sexual violence um, mm-hmm. back when I was working in Montana was that a lot of them felt like they couldn't fight back because that was somebody that they knew somebody that they loved somebody that they cared about or at least that that trust was being abused so you know it's it's one of those things where while we look at this and we say oh maybe maybe now i have to start carrying pepper spray maybe now i need to be carrying you know a keychain or whatever that has you know knives on it it's it's unlikely and we keep pushing this message onto women that you know the only way to be safe is to arm yourself and you know the only way you're going to you know fend that off is that by doing all these things but Realistically, when that does happen and, you know, God forbid somebody does experience that kind of assault, oftentimes it's compounded with a lot of guilt and a lot of, you know, anger that they were saying like, well, I I took that class or I took my my mace and pepper spray. But when that happened, I just I didn't have that in me. My fight or flight or freeze all came in together and I froze or I did what I I did what I thought was going to keep me safe. And we remind survivors of sexual violence that you did what you did to stay alive. And that's the most important thing, is that when you do what you need to do to stay alive, you're doing what's right for yourself. But realistically, you're most likely going to be in a situation where somebody you know is attacking you. Whether that be a classmate, uh, a boyfriend, a partner, um, a dorm mate, you're most likely going to be attacked by somebody you know. Uh,
0: We have a number of emails on this topic. Um, Here's one. From an anonymous emailer, the discussion needs to move toward men who behave in a manner that threatens women. As a man, I don't want women to find it necessary to modify their lives. It's a blight on men that this behavior occurs, and we should be working hard to make it clear to our emerging young men that harassment of women is totally unacceptable. Um, this is from Jane in Washington. She says change will begin more authentically and effectively when leaders join grassroots action and stop making comments, um, such as— the uh, comment made by Governor Reynolds Immediately after the news broke, uh, her quote was, we're angry that a broken immigration system allowed a predator like this to live in our community and we will do all we can to bring justice to Molly's killer. Jane goes on to say it deeply saddens and angers many of us when politicians take advantage of an inappropriate or emotional way, such as Molly's murder for their own personal political gain. What specific action would your guests suggest those of us working at the grassroots level and feeling this sadness and anger take to be part of this important change in our country? country, and world? And I'd love everyone to answer that question. I, Reka, what's your answer?
1: You know, I was just thinking about a little paradox. Some of the letters that I got um, this week from men were were interesting. We're not necessarily angry, um, but came from a perspective that women really need protecting because women are the weaker sex so this one man wrote um, women are the weaker sex if they want protection culture is not enough because nature is never far away the old-fashioned way was for a woman to get a male protector it still works if the woman chooses wisely my wife married me for that very reason and I was thinking about this in the context of Shannon Watts, who was murdered recently, allegedly, by her husband in Colorado, yeah. along with her three- and four-year-old babies and an unborn child. And I thought, boy, you know, that is just um, so wrong-headed. This letter writer was well-meaning, but you're not necessarily – and as Cody was saying, you know, you're more likely to be assaulted violently by someone you know than some stranger on the street. So – it goes back to kind of reforming our entire view about male-female relationships and roles and and scrapping the roles, quite frankly, and also, you know, educating our daughters that they're just as strong and they don't have to be married and they certainly don't have to marry someone who's not trustworthy and doesn't respect them equally in order to feel complete. I mean, I think that's, that's part of it. And I think about... Running, I'm not a runner, but I think to me as a metaphor, running is is one of the most important ways, one of the most ultimate ways that a woman can exercise her freedom. Running is clearly an act of freedom. And that stopping a woman from running, intercepting that is really a kind of way of saying, no, you're not free. It's a message. It's a statement. And those are the kinds of attitudes that we have to
0: change. So what action can Jane in Washington take, do you feel, to to make a difference in her community? I mean, I think that actually
1: some of the emails that you read are very on point. This has to be a community-wide effort, and groups need to be meeting in their neighborhoods, men and women, and talking about what they can do. Um, And, you know, it has to be multi-pronged. It has to start... At the elementary school level, at the daycare level, it has to start with the messages that parents are teaching their sons and daughters, respectively, about their respective values and potentials. And then it has to, you know, we have to have a criminal justice system that reforms people and doesn't just process them, warehouse them, um, without actually addressing the root cause of the violence. Because it's not just... It's not just violence. Violence is an extreme manifestation of sexism. But, you know, it has a different root, which is a sense of inequality of men and women.
0: Rekha Basu, thank you so much for talking with us today. My pleasure. Rekha Basu, columnist for the Des Moines Register. And I want everybody to get a chance to briefly answer that question. Kelly, I'll let you go next. When, you know, when Jane asks, what can I do? I'm sure you've thought about this. What,
3: what can you do? So... I think a lot of it has already been said, um, and I agree wholeheartedly, Uh, but I think that community aspect, right, being around people that you feel empowered by um, and feel connected to is hugely important and super supportive. I mean, it just gives you a safe space, right, Um, to be able to connect and talk uh, with others in your community. And of course, going back to um, it's not just about what can women do, To stay safe. um, But what can we teach our men and boys um, to teach them that it's not okay? And, you know, when we're talking about violence, yes, that's that's on the um, the one end of it. But the other end is is things as small as catcalling. Right. Like that is a, a. not you know you're not getting hurt but it makes women feel very very uncomfortable In teaching men and boys that this is not okay if you think it's funny it's not it just makes women feel uncomfortable they're just out for a run they're doing what they do to to feel good about themselves and um when something like that happens it just creates you know it it can create a sense of fear it creates a sense of somebody intruding in in what in what you're doing um so starting those conversations young is hugely important Annette,
0: uh, your chance. What, what can people do to get involved, to make a difference?
4: I think that within our uh, MVP teaching strategies, really, um, we do devote a lot of attention to um, taking no for an answer um, when we're working um, with young men. I think um, dealing with uh, the reaction to rejection is really an important focus. Um, And I would say, like some of the other commentators have said, is moving this not just into the secondary schools, but moving it even lower uh, into um, when you're dealing with daycare situations. uh, You've got to um, get uh, boys um, able to accept rejection without um, responding with violence. And so that... um, That really struck me with with the Molly Tibbetts story, and I was really glad that we had those scenarios within our training, but I think moving it down into the lower grades is, is, is desirable.
0: I've been talking with Cody Howell, violence prevention specialist at the Women's Resource and Action Center at the University of Iowa, Annette Lynch, director of the School of Applied Human Sciences, co-founding director for the Center for Violence Prevention at the University of Northern Iowa, and Kelly Teesling, trail runner in the Eastern Iowa Corridor, founder of a local chapter of the running club Trail Sisters, and executive director of Girls on the Run of Eastern Iowa. You've been listening to Unsettled, Mapping Me Too, produced by Lindsay Moon, Caitlin Harrop, and Emily Woodbury. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is a production of Iowa Public Radio.